We all know the damage that fires are capable of. What we don't always understand is the cause, behavior, and what to do in the aftermath of a fire. Today, you'll understand these aspects just a little bit more. Welcome to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. We will give you tips on fire prevention, how to deal with insurance matters, and more. Now, here are your hosts, Donna and Mike. Hello and welcome to Speaking of Fire. This is Mike Slatman. I'm your host, uh, co-host, actually. Uh, I am an expert in fire investigations, having over 45 years' experience. I'm a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators and an IAAI, which is International Association of Arson Investigators, uh, CFI, which is Certified Fire Investigator and Certified Instructor. And I am Donna Ingram, the other co-host and past director of the IAAI, and I have nearly 30 years' experience in insurance fraud and fire, and we're happy that you're joining us. Thank you for being here. And, of course, now she doesn't mean pulling uh, insurance fraud, actually fighting insurance fraud. Okay, so (laughs) so when you have experience in it, I want to make sure that they knew what it was about. The first thing I want to start off with something serious, uh, and that is um, that on February the 15th, uh, 2017, at the federal courthouse in Kansas City, Missouri, in Judge Gayatan's court, will be a hearing, uh, sentencing a hearing, uh, rehearing actually, uh, on one of the killers for the six firefighters uh, that were killed in an explosion, uh, a fire and explosion in 1988. And this particular killer has been in prison and um, is trying to get out or at least get resentenced um, to a lesser time. We're hoping to get uh, police and fire, particularly fire people, to go to this hearing. Um, It's at 9 o'clock on February the 15th at the federal courthouse in Kansas City, Missouri, Judge Gaetan's court. Um, And... uh, We'd like you to come in in uh, uniform, or if you're you're in plain clothes, at least uh, some insignia, uh, and and also to support the firefighters' families, the fallen firefighters, the law enforcement and fire service. So please come if you can. Today we have engineers uh, on our show. And we, we, are, we are lucky to have a very good electrical engineer, Mr. Lou Valencia, who is uh, with ESI, a senior staff consultant, and has 70, 17, I'm sorry, 17, not 70, that's, that's not me, 17 years experience in origin and cause investigations, and has worked over 800 fires and electrical investigations. He's an adjunct professor at uh, Portland State University and an instructor with the International Association of Arson Investigators in electrical evidence collection and the scientific method. So, Lou, are you there? I am here, Mike. Thank you. I just want to say, if he had 70 years, he'd be, that'd be close to your experience, Oh, right? that's, that's funny. <laughs> I started when I was three. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and you're not that old, though. I mean, my God. And then, and then, of course, yeah, I've been accused of, of being at the burning bush. That's not true, but I do know who did it. Okay, so now, now, Lou, you also developed something that that we use in uh, in 
in fire investigations is that the uh, and I don't want you to tell exactly what it's about. I just want you to explain that you developed a matrix for fire investigators. Will you kind of indicate that to us? Uh, sure. Yes, I was. I created a way of analyzing, um, summarizing a fire investigation. I had to do trial preparation, and there was no better way to uh, concisely summarize hundreds of hypotheses. So I came up with this this chart that uh, allows you to get all of that on one sheet of paper. And that is terrific, and I, and I use it, and all my people use it. Well, that's fantastic, Mike. I'd like to see some examples of it sometime. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let you read one of my reports if you promise not to tell anybody about it. <laughs> no, <laughs> kidding. Go ahead. Redacted, of course. Redacted. Go ahead. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask, we, t- we spoke about a little earlier, is I know that you've been involved in some interesting cases. Do you have one that comes to mind? Oh, yes. Yes. I have a when, – whenever anybody asks me for a story, this is the one that I think puts the cherry on the, on the Sunday. Awesome. We had a, um, a little cabin, a mountain cabin out in the mountains of uh, Oregon. It used to be a logging cabin, and it – was converted into a little cottage, and a couple were living there. And they had a fire um, on, like, the 22nd of December. And they, you know, the fire marshals said, up, oh, Christmas tree fire, no big deal, accidental. Well, the private sector fire investigator goes out there, and, and we're interviewing them. And, uh, you know, just out of curiosity, what do you think caused the fire? And they said, well, we think it was a Christmas tree fire. Well, what makes you think that? Well, we looked in the window, and the Christmas tree tree was on fire. So we began asking questions about, when you're interviewing people, you ask questions about fuels and heat sources. So we asked, you know, how many lights were on the tree? Were they old? Were they new? Were they in good condition? How many strings of light? Did you have them daisy-chained? Where were they plugged in? Were they on a timer? All this stuff about, you know, how did you water the tree? When, you, when did you buy the tree? Because we want to know whether the tree was dry or not. Okay, so they're telling us all this stuff, and the lights are in good condition, and no, they're not on a timer, and uh, the tree was parked in front of a, um, their, their heater, so maybe it was dry. But uh, So tell us about the gifts under the tree. Yeah, we had gifts under the tree. And I'm beginning to you know, feel like I'm pulling teeth here. They're not being real forthcoming with evidence, or, you know, uh, excuse me, uh, discussion yep. about what was under the tree. So, uh, yeah, we, what kind of gifts? Wrapped gifts. Well, what were in the boxes? Well, he looks at her, she looks at him. Uh, we, you know, old clothes. Yeah, we had some clothes. Uh, what else? Um, electronics. Yeah, we had some electronics. Okay. Uh, what else? Well, we had some road flares. Road flares. <laughs> so, <Yep>. uh, <laughs> we pause for, you know, a heartbeat and, and ask, well, tell us about the road flares. So they're bundled in packages of three, and do you have any photographs? Oh, yeah, we have some. I love taking photographs. We have all these photographs that we took. Uh, It was a beautiful Christmas. The house was great. And there in the photograph is the Christmas tree lit up, all the gifts under the tree, with a package of three long-duration road flares wrapped up. Well, this fire investigator I work with is a road flare magnet. He, if there's a road flare on a fire scene, he'll find it. And he did. So we sent, we sent this debris off for chemical analysis. And it came back positive for fire, road flare residue and mm-hmm. just huge amounts of lamp oil. So we oh. went back and asked them, well, where did the lamp oh. oil come from? 
well, the lamp oil, oh, that must have come from a hurricane lamp that collapsed. Well, you know, the hurricane lamps have the glass chimney and the metal frame with the wick, and we didn't find any of that hardware. We found that hardware somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I'm under the house collecting electrical components that had maybe fallen through the floor, and we decided to collect some of the debris for analysis uh, under the crawl space, sent that off to the lab, and it came back for saturated amounts of lamp oil. Oh, my gosh. The insurance company didn't know what to do with that information. Fast forward five years. It took the insurance company that long to decide what they were going to do. But we're, we're five, five, maybe seven days before trial. We're all doing trial prep. And I get a call from the chemist. The chemist says, Lou, we've got a problem. And I said, what, what could go wrong? <laughs> we, we have all the evidence. Uh, and he says, well, I was, I'm reviewing my chromatograph, gas chromatograph printouts. Gas chromatograph is how they analyze the, uh, the fire debris for accelerants, uh, you know, for things that aren't supposed to be there. And I said, he says he's re- reviewing the gas chromatograph printouts for trial prep. And he said there was so much lamp oil, he completely overlooked the gasoline. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So uh, this yeah. this is a case where, um, and it was the first trial that we used uh, the Balancia ignition matrix that that you mentioned earlier. So mm-hmm. it is it is a trial tested uh, documentation of all the hypotheses we considered, and it clearly showed that um, their hypothesis, the defense hypothesis, was clearly ruled out and. At the end of the day, they had used the road flare to light the lamp oil under the Christmas tree. Fantastic. I, and uh, needless to say, that um, did, did they go to trial then? And uh, did, they, um, did they actually, um, I, I mean, did it go to trial? Or, or oh, yes, this, this was at trial. It was, was a it? civil trial, however. The uh, uh, insurance company... It was a bit unusual. The insurance company preemptively sued their own insured for burning their own house down for uh, arson for profit. Uh, the uh, it never went for whatever reason. I, I don't know all the ins and outs. It never went to any kind of criminal charges. Mm. Well, but did they recover their their money? Did they get money or well, not? Uh, oh, did the insureds? Re- no, the yes. insureds did, did not. Um, they didn't. You know, they were, not, they, when you take out an insurance policy, you don't, you can't um, burn your own house down to collect the insurance. That that's insurance fraud. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard about that once. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We kind of discouraged that a little bit, you know. And uh, okay, so um, so that was the the fuel. That, well, they, they you can fuel uh, combustion. Um, matrix that's yours and we really appreciate that that you developed that for for um, for us fire investigators um, and so maybe you can tell us uh, what role do electrical engineers play in fire investigation uh, maybe you can just run that by us a little bit well sure the engineers we have 110 140 plus credit hours in our educational curriculum where we learn every aspect of the ins and outs of the laws of physics. So when we get to a fire scene, we're looking at the fire scene through the eyes of somebody who can not just imagine 
what happened, but also put some kind of uh, analysis, some kind of positive interpretation on the chemistry, the thermodynamics, the electrical aspects of a fire, and say, wait a minute, this couldn't have happened this way. It had to have happened in this other sequence. So we're able to use the laws of physics to rule out what's possible, what's impossible, and rule in how it must have been. Well, what really, what causes most electrical fires? What's a good example of that? Uh, In one word, um, well, two words, resistance heating. Think of your electric space heater. Maybe you have had one of those older ones where you can uh, you can see the elements actually glowing red. That's resistance heating. Uh, the electric burners on your stove, that's resistance mm-hmm. heating. You pass current through that resistor, it gets hot. Now, you want them to get hot when you have a heating element that's supposed to get hot. What you don't want to have happen is have a bad connection or some other overloaded circuit where it's getting hot and it's not supposed to get hot there. And Those that's where... Things, mm-hmm. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and, and that is what I see is so important for you to be involved because you have the resistance heating, you have electrical activity, and if you have radiant heat, and it, I think it confuses the general person uh, in knowing which was which, which came first. Yes, that's, that's one of the tricks of the, that, that we have to, to use here. If we mm-hmm. think an appliance is at the heart of a fire, we can look at that device and say, these things must have happened in this sequence for that device to have failed and for the fire to have originated there. So we have to look at these devices and, and see if we can divine from the object itself and the surrounding evidence, which was victim, which was cause. And the laws right. of physics are what let us do that. And I'm, I'm and your, your electrical engineers used by private investigators all the time because uh, there are some arson, arsonists that try to indicate that there's a, that it's an electrical causation uh, when you are able to prove unequivocally that it's uh, not. Now there, but for for all of our listeners, are there certain uh, devices or appliances, uh, Lou, that uh, we should look out for out there? Yes, there's. There's a whole host of things that, that I would um, uh, wag my finger and say, be careful. Uh, most, most, look at the labels on the devices. If they're labeled for indoor use only, then use them indoors only. If they <laughs> use them outdoors, then the weather will degrade them, and that can cause resistance heating on a bad connection. It can also be subject to mechanical abuse if, a, if an, like an extension cord is not rated for outdoor use is used outdoors. Extension cords and um, the outlet strips that every one of us has under his desk for our computers are meant to be temporary, and the National Electric Code defines those devices as temporary as 90 days. Oh, okay. Yeah, because a lot of people use it as, uh, as, as regular wiring. Exactly. So the... And don't daisy chain them. If you have, if you don't have enough outlets, for God's sake, have an electrician come in and put a, uh, a second outlet box next to the first one, so that you have more 
direct plug-ins. Don't take a, an outlet strip and plug it into a second outlet strip and plug that into a third outlet strip. That that creates terrible problems. Uh, fortunately, we don't. These things are infrequent, but because of what we do, Mike, you and I, we yeah. see more than our share of these failures. So these are the most common things when we go to a fire that I see that that is wrong. Absolutely, and and uh, you've just used a daisy chain example. Thank you for doing that. And will you tell people why they don't do that? Why? How come it? It's electrical energy. It's it's just going. It's just going a little farther, isn't it? You know. I mean, will you explain it to them, Lou? Well, yes. It. it uh, let me use a, a water analogy. Uh, you have a garden hose, and it's anywhere from three quarters of an inch to maybe an inch if you've got a, a big garden hose. Imagine trying to water your yard through a soda straw. <laughs> so when, when you start hooking hoses together and they're different diameters, that creates a restriction on the water flow. In the electrical terms, that restriction causes resistance heating. Mm-hmm. The load, the cumulative load, the first, the first unit, the first outlet strip may be rated for 1,500 watts. Think of a space heater. But now if you've got three of them in series, you have the 1,500 watt plugged into the first one. You've got a second one with another 1,500 watt plugged into it and a third one with another 1,500 watt. So now that first one has 4,500 watts (laughs) being pulled through it. So you, you don't want to daisy chain them. You want them short cords. You want them to go directly to the wall. And, and uh, I, I have to mention this. In the surge suppressing outlet strips, if you have one that you can identify that's 2001 or older, please, please, please take it out of service. Uh, the UL changed the standard in 2001 to include extra protection so that the surge suppressing elements, when they fail... Uh, I call them sacrificial elements. They actually sacrifice a bit of their functionality each time they suppress a, a bit of surge voltage. And I like some that. of them can fail in a way that makes them little little heaters enough to uh, ignite and melt the plastic uh, outlet strip. So take 2001 and earlier, take them out of service. I'm going to borrow that from you and and let other people know. And and that is a good example of what you were talking about. Resistance heating is also placing furniture and large objects on top of of wiring, and that's what occurs. And then if you have a a combustible item and it, it eventually heats to ignite, that's why we have fire, correct? That's exactly right. I, I, when I'm explaining it to... Uh, a lay jury, I'll talk about you put on your coat. And when you put on your coat, you get warm inside. The temperature inside the coat goes up because you're retaining that heat. So if you have an extension cord that runs across the room and it's a trip hazard, you throw, you throw a carpet over it. Well, that carpet insulates that extension cord. Guess what happens? It's like putting a coat on. Any heat that that cord wants to... to throw off into the environment to keep itself cool is now kept warm by the carpet you've put over it. And it makes it, as you mentioned, more prone to being uh, tread upon and, and mechanically damaged from that foot traffic. And now these carpets and different things that they use are petroleum-based 
synthetic items too. Oh, some, yeah. of them fuel. some of them, not all of them, yeah. but but some of the newer materials burn hotter and quicker. Yeah, I think I think one of the guests on a previous show covered that uh, wood fuels versus the synthetic fuels. They they burn at very different rates with very different uh, toxic byproducts. That's exactly right. And uh, okay, well, so hey, well, let's tell the audience and and. Uh, and even other fire investigators uh, that are out there that are not using uh, electrical engineers, like a lot of public service uh, don't have uh, the resources to do that. What type of electrical items would be examined by you, a forensic uh, electrical engineer? Oh, you know, look around your house. Look around the room you're in. Everything that's plugged into the wall uh, is, is up for grabs. You know, batteries, toasters. Refrigerators, space heaters, furnaces, Christmas tree lights, televisions, laptop computers, uh, telephones. Uh, they all operate according to the laws of physics, and they all use, they all convert either chemical energy to electricity or draw electricity out of an outlet to turn it into some kind of mechanical motion, you know, like, like a blender, or they turn it into a heat like a toaster or a toaster oven. Any of those appliances, if they are in an area of what the fire investigator determines, hey, look, Lou, I think the fire started here. Can you help me identify these appliances? Uh, they look very different after a fire. Uh, a blender is a pile of plastic, and that plastic will burn, and it may not look like a blender after the fire. So we, we go in and and look at these appliances and decide – Oh, this, this looks like a blender. I recognize the motor and the switches. And Oh, here's a, a toaster. We recognize that because it's got a metal body on it. And we can identify these different appliances and identify whether they're plugged in or not. And that's good. And in fact, of the matter is you also look at things like electric um, circuit breaker panels and things like that, right? Yes, that, that's a whole. Uh, uh, very seldom do the circuit breaker panels cause fires, although uh, there are certain brands that are older vintage that, that have failed and, and caused problems. But that's a whole other aspect of, of what an electrical engineer can do, Mike, the whole yeah. concept of arc fault mapping and fire patterns. Are there appliances or devices that we need to be looking out for? That you can, for, yeah, yeah, like recalled there's, things or there's, something that well, you know. The way I do it, and... My wife and I are, you know, both members of the IAAI. Uh, we look at, and when we look at an appliance when we're shopping or something is on sale, we'll look it up on the Consumer Product Safety Commission website, cpsc.gov or recalls.gov. And we'll actually research things that we already have in our home for recalls. And some of them are recalled for burn hazards. Some of them are recalled for other hazards, and some are recalled because they're fire hazards. We try to identify those products, and, and we, uh, we return them to the manufacturers if we find one. That's fantastic. Um, well, I want to tell you, um, we thank you for being here. We, uh, we, are, uh, we have been re- renewed. Uh, we're going to be on for another year, and we'd like to have you back if, in the future if you would be so kind. I'd be thrilled to come back. 
Yeah, well, great. And then uh, and we'll talk a, a little bit more in, in, in some specifics. Thank you for being here today. And um, we're going to we're going to start the second half of our show. Uh, you're welcome to stay around, but I know you're busy if you want to go. Uh, thank you. And, and uh, I hope to see you at the uh, International Association of Arson Investigators uh, training conference. Likewise. I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you. And um, okay, thank you. So upcoming in our second uh, half is uh, is a mechanical engineer, Mr. Kyle Minden, with Engineering Design and Testing, and uh, he's going to be here to talk to us about mechanical things that can start fires. And join us in a minute. Thank you. making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Fire Consulting International provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our experienced certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements. We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. FireAnalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact FireAnalysis.net. That's FireAnalysis.net. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. To call in to today's show... Please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to connect at speakingoffire.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Speaking of Fire. Thanks for joining us. Yes, and now we're privileged to have a a great mechanical engineer. I've actually worked with... uh, with uh, Kyle uh, Minden. He is a graduate of the Kansas uh, State University and is a consultant in areas of design, performance machinery, machinery components, pressure uh, vessels, um, fracture analysis, metallurgical uh, analysis, fire protection, sprinkler systems, materials, component testing, and infrared thermatography. If I missed anything, he's also that. Okay. (laughs) And prior to being with Engineering Design and Testing in 2007, he worked as a project engineer um, in heavy wall uh, custom-built pressure vessels and piping for NASA. 
So we're not playing with kids here. And the uh, uh, pyrochemical and power generation industries, uh, he's licensed in 23 states uh, and has been involved in over 100 uh, investigation in natural gas and propane system fires and explosions. Uh, welcome, Kyle. Hi, Mike. Hi, Donna. Uh, yeah, you're great. And you know what? I, we've worked together before. And one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, because uh, I know that you have the experience, you worked a fatality propane explosion. And would you ex- explain um, to our audience uh, uh, about, uh, well, using that, ca- uh, that example, uh, how things can go wrong sometimes? Sure. Um, that was one where a gentleman was was trying to light his pilot light. Um, he had just received a delivery of propane after having been out of propane and uh, got home, was trying to light the pilot. Uh, unfortunately, there had been a leak, and when he went to light the pilot, there was an explosion. Um, we went out there, and in the course of uh, the investigation, we needed to do a pressure test of the propane system. And we did that, and we found we found a leak in the house, and we traced it to this brass um, appliance connector that ran between one of the the black iron supply lines uh, to a wall furnace, and it it had a visual rupture in it. But uh, the question that we're always asked to answer is. Is that rupture a result of the fire or explosion, or was that the actual cause? And so we tested everything else. We didn't find any other leaks. Um, we ended up securing this uh, brass appliance connector uh, as evidence. We took it to a laboratory. We did some analysis on the, the actual fracture, and we determined that it was stress corrosion cracking uh, that had taken place. And really, one of the elements that can cause stress corrosion cracking in brass is ammonia. Mm. And so we kind of traced back uh, to the propane delivery company. They actually used the same truck to deliver propane and to deliver ammonia to the farmers that use it as fertilizer. Oh, and if, God. And if you don't completely clean the tank and get all of the ammonia out of there. It only takes a tablespoon a tablespoon uh, size of ammonia to contaminate pretty much the whole load of propane. And uh, we determined that's exactly what happened in that particular case. Uh, good grief. Um, and of course, there is absolutely no way that the consumer would know that or be able to figure that out. And so that's why that's why you as a, as a as an engineer and and electrical engineers too uh, that's why you're so important. I mean you save people's lives by finding these things out to make sure that it's not repeated. Um, I also want to say uh, I know that you also work natural gas uh, um, leaks and stuff like that. There there are sometimes um, uh, either it's propane or there's natural gas leak underground, and the mercaptans that they put in there to make it smell like uh, like rotten eggs um, 
uh, the molecules of, of that uh, are, are larger than the smaller uh, gas molecules. So you'll end up getting in your house or you can get in, in your house uh, fuel gas, whether it's, it's gas, uh, natural gas or propane, that is odorless and, and invisible to you. So, um, and so when you suspect, you, you can't get something lit um, or something like that. When you suspect there may be a problem, uh, please call your utility company and don't light anything or open or, or turn on lights or, or uh, anything, use anything that will spark. Um, now, uh, Kyle, you, um, uh, you're, a, you're a mechanical engineer and, uh, and you go to fire investigations too. What, what kind of things do you, uh, how are you part of this team that, that looks at things? Usually when I'm when I get involved, the fire investigator, the origin and cause person, has already been out there and kind of determined their origin and there's usually some mechanical device involved in the or area of origin and or the entire, you know, gas supply system um, is involved. And so, so you, what I go mm-hmm. ahead, Donna. Oh, I was just going to say. So you're you're out there to see what type of malfunction you can tell if a, if there's been a malfunction. Well, either to rule something out or to rule something in. Um, a lot of times, the fire investigator may not know whether the gas supply system had anything to do with it or not. Um, there may be a component of it that is in his area of origin, but he needs to rule that out. So a lot of times, I come out and and I perform a pressure test. And we document any leaks, if there are any, and a lot of times we don't find any leaks at all, and we're able to rule that portion of the gas supply system out of the equation as, as a possible causative factor. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great because I know I've used you too in that regard because you'll have a bunch of different components in an area uh, and and you can uh, you can help us narrow the uh, the field. Uh, on top of that, in, like in you you had the propane example, you can always uh, you can do strip tests and and also uh, check for odorant, can't you? Yes, there's um, there's a couple different ways um, when you're. Dealing with propane, uh, there's a stain tube test that you can do. Um, that's something fairly simple that we can do right there in the field. Um, there's always always your nose that you can use. Um, there's only a very small percentage, I think, of the population that is not able to smell the sulfur compounds, the mercaptans that you talked about earlier, that are put in there um, as a detector for most people. Um, so I always trying to see if I can smell it myself. Um, then we can do a, a stain tube test, with the, which is a semi-qualitative test, or you can actually collect a liquid sample of the propane and send that in to be analyzed to, to get a, a qualitative uh, number on the amount of odorant that is in that particular propane sample. Yeah, um, and they and there are people that understand don't understand, and I know you do that that odorant can uh, odorant isn't always in propane. That 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 uh, propane can be used as a propellant, uh, also, and has been used uh, historically uh, as a propellant, like in uh, aerosols. Is that correct? That that's correct, and that also holds true for natural gas. There are um, interstate 
transmission lines that are not required to be odorized. Um, and in the portion of the country that we live in, um, there are many uh, natural gas transmission lines that crisscross the area, and there are certain farmers that have what's called a farm tap. And when the, when they get that, they're required to have an odorizer system installed such that if there is a leak downstream at the house or or uh, wherever the, the natural gas is being used, that they would be able to detect that uh, leak. And I've, I've had a couple where farm taps have been involved, and there's been a question of whether the odorizer system was actually working. Well, you can understand why uh, you wouldn't want to have odorant in like uh, a propellant for hairspray. Donna would not like to spray Mercaptan um, over her hair. No, <laughs> nobody would like that. <laughs> uh, no. And a uh, question for you that came to mind, is there odorant in these vehicles that we see on the road, the commercial vehicles that you know some of the cities are using that are marked as, as gas-powered vehicles? Uh, they should be odorized. Okay. Okay, great. I was just curious because I had never even considered if if Mercaptan was put into those tanks. So if you if you've determined that a machine uh, caused a fire, um, uh, do you, I mean let's say it's in the middle of a fire scene, can you take that machine uh, and do a laboratory analysis and figure out why it malfunctioned? Uh, most of the time, yes. Um, through a series of x-rays to see, you know, the internal working mechanisms, um, through pressure testing, and then actually um, disassembling various components and seeing the mechanism of failure, we can kind of work backwards knowing how things are supposed to work, how it's supposed to operate, what some of the known failure modes are. Um, We can put together that scenario Lou was kind of talking about that earlier, about the sequence of events that led to um, the escape of gas and and potential cause of the fire or or explosion. Right, and uh, in fact, and yeah, I've actually been in your uh, in your your uh, uh, warehouse and laboratory, and uh, I know that it can be it can be really done. uh, and I also I, I also know that uh, that you have uh, that you have all the there all the testing equipment that you need. Do you ever have to go outside, like to electric uh, electron scanning microscopes or anything, to look at anything? Yes, and there's um, in fact we're we're getting ready to add some of that equipment here ourselves. But we do have a laboratory that we normally work with um, that has that capability. No, it's great. That's great. Um, I think Donna had a question here. Yeah, I actually. And Lou, are you still on the line? He must. He must. Him. He might just be listening. I, okay. okay. I'm here. Um, I just wanted to ask the, the two of you because it is engineering, and you are looking at similar things. Um, you are crossing over into each other's areas and in, in having to work together. Yes, in that's certain true. instances. Yeah, and 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 there's actually a protocol E860 uh, ASTM E860 on uh, Kyle that, that you follow religiously, and I and you follow that too, don't you, Lou? Yes, we do. Yeah. And and the reason we can overlap is because 
so much of what we do is fundamentals. It, it's, it's very basic. It doesn't always use the most exotic mechanical engineering, <laughs> even though we may have right. that experience. The fundamentals right. don't change, and, we're all, and mechanical or electrical, we've got the fundamentals. Right, and and so, uh, well, Kyle, uh, you know, there are engineers out there, and I'm sorry to, to, to you know, I imagine that there are, are engineers with um, with dual uh, degrees and, and, and work in both disciplines, but there are some engineers out there that uh, that act like they have, you know, one, that say that they're a mechanical engineer, but they want to, but they do consulting as electrical engineers and and uh, let's say they're electrical engineers and they want to, they think that they're mechanical engineers. I would like to get both of you to, to comment, uh, Kyle, about that kind of thing. Do you believe that, do you believe that you should, that there's one discipline, if you have your degree, you should stick in that discipline? I, this is purely a question of me as a fire investigator. I don't know. Well, I, yes, I believe in the code of ethics for engineers says so as well, that you should only be practicing in areas which you have, you know, education, experience, and training. And so I try to stay within that focus of mechanical engineering, and if it deviates into Lou's world of electrical engineering, I then engage an electrical engineer. Great. You have both working for your firm and uh, and and Lou, do you what do you what's your feeling about that? And and do you, does your firm have both uh, also? Oh yes, we have uh, all all disciplines of uh, engineer, mechanical, electrical. My background is actually biomedical, mm-hmm. microelectronics. Uh, again, you you the engineering is not static. You're in a continually learning mode, but. But Kyle took the words out of my mouth. The code of ethics says you you have to learn where the limits of your capabilities are, and call in uh, an, another investigator to help it with expertise you may not have. That's that's clearly spelled out in NFPA 921. It's called teamwork. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and we you know and and I'm glad you brought that up because our code of ethics as fire investigators is we're truth seekers, not case makers. And I know both of you, and I know that's part of your your uh, your thing too. Kyle, when um, I wanted to ask you because we spoke a little bit beforehand, and uh, you did with Mike, um, fatalities. What is is there any? I guess, what do you do in the case of a fatality? Is there a protocol that uh, you have to go through? That Well, I, uh, my goal is to treat every case exactly the same. Um, and and right. Lou alluded to it a little bit earlier, is using the scientific method. Um, we go through and we methodically come up with hypotheses and we test those hypotheses against the data that we have. And I do that for each and every case, regardless of whether there's a fatality involved. Um, somebody has called me out there to help determine what happened, and, and I see that as my function. Yeah, not so much. I guess my, my question wasn't phrased well. <laughs> not that you would do anything different, but to, to know that that is the ultimate uh, 
consequence to some type of a failure or things like that, 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 that it's not just a failure, it can actually have grave consequence. Yeah, I mean, th- those are the saddest cases that we have is when, when there's actually a fatality involved. And, and you know, and do you ever uh, testify in, uh, I mean, there, there are, sometimes there's law, wrongful death suits brought by the families and stuff like that. Have you ever been involved in one of those cases? Yes. Yes. Yeah, and those, so, are, those are the ones that usually do end up in court. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I am not, a, we don't always end up in court, though, do we? Uh, because I remember you and I worked one where it was a, <laughs> It was in a in a uh, downtown um, a room, a mechanical room for a um, parking garage. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And and, and that one, uh, it, well, uh, without talking about exactly everything about where it was at and all that stuff, but there there was a lot of oil and thrown around and ignition, hot surface ignition, and all kinds of stuff wasn't there involved in that one. Yeah, that was with the backup generator. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So so um, there are times that we're going into these things where we really need your expertise to not only know how this thing worked, but why it didn't function properly. And and you're you're allowed to, you're not allowed to. You that is your area of expertise. You you tell us uh, the as the fire investigator, well, when this happens, this happens. And um, and do you do you find you're having to educate a lot of uh, not only fire investigators but uh, general public or, or engineers or designs uh, designs uh, designing people? Do you have to educate them in, in your discipline? Um, well, there's there's always that element where you're trying to to educate those around you, whether it's the you know insurance adjuster that you're working with or just others in your actual firm trying to bring them up to speed and get them to a level of proficiency where they can be successful. Um, I don't have that much interaction with the design on the design side um, Mm -hmm. so much, but it's certainly when things go, um, when they go back to put things back in order, um, if we have found something, we certainly make that known to the design engineers that are trying to put the the parking garage or the backup generator, whatever it may be, back in service so that they can um, not do the the same mistake or make the same mistake that may have been made earlier. I'm thinking about furnaces. What what are uh, the fires involving furnaces? What do you see as a most common thing? Well, I see a lot of homeowners that try and do the work themselves that get into trouble. Um, that they may think they know how the furnace works and how the the pressure regulator and all that works, but they don't really totally understand the ramifications of some of the changes that they may try to make. And so I that should truly be left to the HVAC professional. Right. That's terrific, and that, that's right. I mean, a lot of people do the the how to it. They they get on the internet and they think they uh, now they they are one. You know, they're now an HVAC guy. Um, and a lot of the uh, what do you 
find, uh, Kyle, in your experience, so we asked uh, Lou this, so what do you find uh, the, the most common uh, kind of fires that you're working? What is, what's it caused by? What kind of appliances or devices or whatever? Wow, that's a tough question because it really covers a wide range of products. Um, but, of course, um, space heaters, mm-hmm. um, we run into a lot. Fireplaces, uh, especially at the beginning of the heating season, you know, we see a lot of fireplaces that may have been overfired, or if it's their first time being fired, we learn that the construction of the particular fireplace wasn't up to code. Mm-hmm. Um, it resulted in a fire. Um, but I don't know that I could pinpoint one exact product or thing that I generally see because it really runs uh, a wide range of different products. Yeah, so I'm, I'm sure that's that's true. Um, I'm glad you brought up fireplaces because people do not understand that they can actually put too many uh, things in the fireplace and, and burn them and are even what they're burning is important um, and you're there for the analysis of it uh, uh, you're brought in and in many cases there's there's a bunch of people brought in for a joint examination of the scene uh, the, the guy that installed the fireplace the the uh, the electrical contractor that uh, put in the the uh, outlets or the fan uh, the gas people that ran the CSST uh, or whatever are all brought into these things. Um, and can you just comment for one second on the overfire? Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, there. Um, if you build too big of a fire, uh, the flu is only designed to handle uh, a certain amount of heat input or heat output from the fireplace. And... They have design clearances in there uh, between the outside surface of the flue and any nearby combustible. Um, and if that flue temperature, you know, is exceeded, it can certainly cause the nearby combustibles uh, to catch fire. Mm. So you're tell I have run in Kansas City, Kansas, where this guy wanted a, a, a firebox. Uh, I mean, a fireplace. So what he did is he cut a hole in the wall, stuck a, a metal box, a sheet metal box on it, built a built a a, a wooden uh, enclosure with a with a, a flue that went up, wooden flue, and uh, and cut a hole in the top of the of the uh, stainless steel, and then started burning logs. What do you think? Um, do you think that would be uh, in up to your code there, uh, mechanically speaking? Uh, n- no. Um, <laughs> he needs to take a course on thermodynamics and heat transfer. <laughs> burn, his, burn the end of his house off, though. <laughs> go ahead. Or just go ahead and, and put your hand over fire and see how hot it gets. I mean, that's, that's about as simple as it can get. Right. Well, we're, we're, we're down to our last couple of minutes of the show. Um, I want to thank you, Kyle, for all the good work that you do, and, and you, Lou, too, if you're still there. And, um, and thank you guys for, for what you contribute to our society. We really appreciate you guys. Um, and we appreciate all the good education that you give to us fire investigators um, and, uh, and keeping the, all the society um, uh, safe. Yes, and in the future, um, I would like to bring you back and we can get a little more detailed about specific things in fire safety to share with our listeners. Sure. 
I would love that. Awesome. And you too, Louis, if you're still there, my boy. I'm here. Okay, well, look, we're going to bring you back because we we just re-upped for another year, so we're going to be, um, uh, as Donna pointed out to me, not only do we have the remaining uh, shows, but we have 52 more weeks after that. So, 52. Uh, yeah, so you might have to come in and talk for a little longer, uh, both <laughs> of you. Uh, and if, uh, Kyle, uh, we're going to uh, the International Training Conference in Las Vegas for the International Association of Arson Investigators. If, you, if you're out there, please come by because we're going to be doing a show from there. Um, okay. And, uh, and if you're not, well, uh, we'll see you on the fire scene for sure. And, Lou, if you're at that international, please come and see us, okay? Next week, we're going to have a big announcement, big. Big, yes, and and right now, uh, speaking of next week, we're going to have four attorneys on, uh, two of them being um, about law enforcement and the other two being about uh, insurance claims. Samantha Shannon is a prosecutor for Johnson County. Uh, Mark, uh, I'm sorry, David Bridges was a CFI uh, and, uh, and was a law enforcement officer. Mark Shear from Washington is a uh, insurance defense attorney, and Chris Councilman um, from White and Williams is a um, is a subrogation attorney. Please join us next next week, and thanks so much for listening. Yes, and thank you for and do come back to Speaking of Fire. We could use some listeners and tell your friends. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Speaking of Fire. Please join your hosts, Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, for another edition of our program next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember to be careful this week and every week.